when at, at times he would walk out on the front porch and he would close his eyes on a windy day and he would dream of what it would feel like to have that same wind carry him across the water. And as he grew up, as he got older, he started to study about how ships are made and how they work. He started to study every single thing about what it looked like to captain a ship, to be a sailor. Because he believed and he knew that one day he was going to sail ships all across the world. It was something that he felt called to do. It was something that he felt gave him a lot of joy and happiness. But Charlie had one problem. He feared the ocean. Maybe he feared it because of the size. Maybe it was because it was mysterious. Maybe it was just because it felt overwhelming to him. But for whatever reason, he feared the ocean. He wasn't the greatest swimmer, and so he feared what it would, what it would look like to drown and to sink to the bottom of the ocean. And so what once was a great dream for him suddenly became overcome with fear. As great as his passion was for sailing, his fear of the ocean became even greater. And as he got older, fear overtook him and it kept him from the one place that he was meant to be. And at the end of his life, he died, not as a great captain sailing all around the world, but simply as an old man who never overcame his fear. See, he thought that giving into his, his fear kept him from dying, but in all reality, him giving into his fear kept him from actually living. I wonder for, for how many of, of us in this room, maybe, we can identify with Charlie. Or maybe when you think of how many people in our churches nowadays, their, their lives resemble what Charlie was feeling. And not so much that we want to be captain of a, a ship or because we fear the ocean, but that we're similar to Charlie in this way. That there is a great mystery that has been given to us that can radically change the way that we live our lives. However, there are many of us who stay away from it because we don't understand it. We don't experience it because we feel like for whatever reason, that it's overwhelming or it's something that we can't really get our minds around. We don't practice it because we fear what it will do to our religiousness. And it's our fear of this thing or maybe our uncertainty of this thing that keeps us from truly living. Now, you guys see on the screen, this thing that I'm talking about is something called grace. And here's what we're going to do over the next four weeks, we're going to dive in deep to this whole idea of what grace actually is. And as we do this, here's my hope and here's my, my prayer, is that all of us would drown. That we would, rather than kind of being tentative or being scared of it or fearful of it or not really sure what, we, what we're supposed to believe or whether it's okay for us to dive in, but rather we would, as we be begin to understand more about what it is, is that we would dive in and we would drown in God's grace. Now, when we think of the term grace, there's a lot of things that come to our mind, all right? Maybe we think of, you know, a song that we sing about you know, amazing grace, or maybe we think about, um, you know, the lunch lady at school with a hairnet whose name's Grace, or maybe we think of all kinds of stuff. Maybe we even think, um, maybe we think, when we think of grace, we think 
the blessing. How many of you guys have any idea what I'm talking about? What is wrong with you people? Seriously? How many of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about? Oh my gosh, dear Lord. All right, you guys just need, you need grace. Hey, so, all right, so just to catch all of us up, all right, probably one of the greatest Christmas movies, one of the greatest scenes in a Christmas movie of all time, Christmas Vacation. How many of you guys have never seen Christmas Vacation? Oh my goodness. All right. So you guys have, you have some homework to do over the next, whatever, month, all right? It's going to be on plenty of time, so you find Christmas Vacation and you watch it, all right? But just, just so that all of us, so I don't feel like a complete buffoon up here, we're going to catch all of you guys up, all right? So here's the scene. We've we got to watch the scene, all right? Here's the scene that I'm talking about. Go ahead and watch the screens. Before we begin, since this is Aunt Beth. There you go. Before we begin, since this is Aunt Bethany's 80th Christmas, I think she should lead us in the saying of grace. Oh, oh great. Oh. What, dear? Grace! Grace! She passed away 30 years ago. They want you to say grace. The blessing. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. One nation, with liberty and justice for all. Amen. 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 All right, there you go. Now you guys, you all know what I'm talking about. All right, so we think of all kinds of things, all right? But here's the thing. Grace, and what we're talking about over the course of this series, is not something you do before dinner on a, on, at a Christmas meal. Uh, it's not, you know, your grandma's name or something crazy like that. Here's the definition that we're given for grace over the course of this series, and it's on the screen now. The definition of grace we're talking about, to try to make it as simple as we possibly can, is getting what we don't deserve. All right, grace is simply getting or receiving something that we don't deserve, something that we haven't earned. So when we talk about grace, that's what we're referring to. That's the definition that we're going to use over the course of this series. Now, before we can fully experience the getting part or the receiving, which is what so many of us are interested in, we've got to first go and talk about and come to grips with what we deserve. Because grace means nothing if we don't understand how undeserving of it we are. Now, our culture that we live in constantly tries to minimize our need for grace. All right? Tries to look at this idea or this concept of grace and say, that's not something that I need, that's not something that really benefits me or that I'm all that interested in. And if you don't believe me, here's a a phrase that's become very popular in our culture, and it's live with no regrets. Right? YOLO. How many of you guys, how many of you guys have heard that phrase or you, you use that phrase? That's like your, you know, that's like your, whatever, your Twitter 
name right under your name is like your phrase. Live with no regrets. And then like a smiley face and a heart. So we use that a lot, or we've heard that a lot. And here's, here's what that phrase is actually referring to. This is a phrase that our culture has, has kind of introduced to us. And in part, what it's saying is, is that we refuse to live with regrets of past mistakes or failures. All right? For us, that we're going to choose to look at our past and some of the things that we've done, and not to look at those things as regrets or mistakes. Those things, we haven't made any mistakes. All of those things, no matter how harsh they may seem, or other people may say that they're mistakes, what they've actually done is they have shaped who we are today. And they've helped us learn and grow and mature. And so I don't look at them as mistakes. I'm not really even all that ashamed by them or look at them as a negative thing because I live with no regrets. And I choose to look on the past and my life and the way that I've lived as if it's not that big of a deal. And it's an, it is, to a certain extent, in that capacity, it's a, it's a very um, attractive mindset. Is that we feel like, you know what, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to give an account for anything that I've done or the way that I've lived. So, YOLO, let's live with no regrets. But here, here's the problem with that, with that phrase. Is that it's, it's not really consistent with the truth that God says about who we are. In fact, in Romans chapter 3, here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, The law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses. And to show that the entire world, that's all of us, is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. See, here's the the thing for all of us. We can try to explain away past mistakes. We can pretend that they don't exist. We can even convince ourselves to live in such a way that we live with no regrets. That we don't regret anything that's in our past. But none of that changes the fact that our past is full of mistakes. And a lot of those things, because of our sinful nature, they separate us from a holy God. They do have weight. They do have impact. And here's the thing. For all of us, one day we will stand before God and we will, all of us, have to give an account of the way that we lived. And I don't, I don't think that God's really going to accept the excuse, well, hey, God, it doesn't really matter. I mean, all those things that I did, it doesn't really matter because I, I live with no regrets. Those things weren't that big of a deal. They didn't really matter all that much. See, our past matters. Our mistakes are a big deal. Now, Jesus had many encounters with people when he was walking the earth, not with people that necessarily had that mindset of living with no regrets, but rather who fully understood the weight of their past mistakes, who really understood how undeserving they were of anything good. We look at the disciples that that followed Jesus around. None of them were religious people when when he called them to follow him. I mean, you're talking about people who were outcasts, they were thieves, they were sinners. And one such encounter that Jesus had was with a guy named Matthew. And Matthew, if we were to rank all of the disciples in terms of their unworthiness to receive anything good, then Matthew probably would rank at or near the top. Matthew was a tax collector. All right, which for us doesn't really sound that big of a deal. You work for the IRS. You know, I mean, there's better things to do, but it's not that big of a deal. 
But in that day and age, tax collectors were not looked at very favorably. They were notorious for being thieves, for robbing people of their money, for swindling people out of what was rightfully theirs. And they were looked at in a very negative way. And especially a guy like Matthew, because Matthew was a Jew. And he was hated by the Jews because he, he robbed the Jews, his own people, of their money to give it to the Roman government who, were, who was oppressing Israel. So as Matthew walked around, this is a guy that a lot of the Jews and the people that were walking around with Jesus, they didn't, they didn't like Matthew very much. And in Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has an encounter with Matthew. And we could read the passage, but I think it's a whole lot better if we are able to watch what takes place and, and, and just to kind of visualize it a little bit. So if you guys over the last couple of years saw the whole Son of God miniseries that, that was played, I remember as, as I was watching that whole thing, this particular scene just stood out to me. And it's amazing. I want you to watch what takes place. So take just a minute and, uh, and watch this, this scene unfold. <laughs> We're all Jews. How can they live with themselves? Our own people working for Rome. These people make me sick. Collaborators, let's move on. They're stinking vermin. You should keep your distance from Two men went to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, and the other one a tax collector. The Pharisee prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, thieves, adulterers, or this tax collector. But the tax collector didn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. God bless the tax collector, not the Pharisee. Anyone who praises himself for be humbled and anyone who humbles himself will be praised Matthew come Hey! <laughs> 
calls the sinners to follow him. One has to wonder of the sins committed by his other followers. All right, now, that particular scene is not a, an exact account of Matthew chapter 9, but I love the visual that that creates for us. And there's so much going on in this particular passage. You've got this Pharisee who immediately casts judgment on this tax collector, Matthew. And here's the, here's the thing about what, Matthew, or, or what the Pharisee says. All of his accusations were true. Now, I think that's in part why Matthew got so emotional was because he knew, he, he couldn't refute all of those things that the Pharisee was saying about him. He didn't stand up and go, that's not true, you're making this stuff up. I mean, he knew full well the extent of his sin. He knew how many people he had cheated out of money. He knew what he had stolen from the, from the Jewish people. He knew that he stood guilty. And that's exactly what the Pharisee was trying to get across. See, if, when we come face to face with the understanding of how little we deserve, if you've got this, just the side of understanding how much we, we don't deserve, but there's no grace attached to it, then all you're left with is guilt. All you're left with is shame. And that's exactly what the Pharisee wanted Matthew to feel. The Pharisee was not interested in extending grace to Matthew. He wanted him to know that he was the scum of the earth and he wanted him to feel completely and totally worthless. But Jesus was willing to do something much different. See, Jesus came around and he was not interested in calling those who thought they were worthy, but rather calling those who knew that they never could be. That's the whole reason why Jesus came. Jesus was looking for those people who knew that they were unworthy, who knew the depths of their sin. And Matthew fit to a T the profile that Jesus was looking for. Now here's what all of us have to get our minds around and understand tonight. The hard truth for all of us is that we are all Matthew. We are all Matthew, every single one of us. We are scum. We lie, we cheat, and we steal. We are selfish, and we are arrogant. And because of our sin, because of the mistakes in our past, we all deserve God's wrath. And the laws of God condemn us just like that Pharisee does. They shout accusations at all of us, and all of those accusations are true. See, grace means nothing to us if we don't first understand how little we deserve. But see, then Jesus comes into the picture. And what was his reaction to Matthew? He doesn't condemn, he forgives. He doesn't cast judgment. He offers a way out. See, Jesus doesn't look at Matthew and say, hey, it doesn't matter. All those accusations aren't true. They're not that big of a deal. 
He never excuses all of Matthew's behavior. He never, he never says, hey, don't worry about the mistakes that you've made. But what he does do is he comes along to Matthew and he offers him a better life. He offers him a way out. He offers him grace. And what Jesus comes along and does for Matthew, he does for each and every one of us who are equally desperately in need of something to make us worthy. See, as great as our sin is, no matter how great that may be in our past, God's grace is greater. So what exactly does grace look like? Here's a couple things. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, Paul says, You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. So what does grace look like? Jesus comes into the picture, and where we had nothing, Jesus gives us everything. That you and I are poor people who are, to a certain extent, left out in the cold. And Jesus doesn't just kind of bring us in and get us out of the cold. Jesus then dumps on us the complete 100% goodness. He makes us, not only does he bring us in, but then he unloads everything on us. He makes us worthy. He makes us righteous. He makes us rich. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things that we have done. So none of us can boast about it. As long as we can minimize our sin, as long as we can pass it off to somebody else, as long as we can feel like it's not that big of a deal or we've earned something from God, then we don't fully understand what grace is all about. We walk into this room tonight deserving of absolutely nothing good from God. And God, in the midst of our unrighteousness, where we deserve to be condemned, God took our condemnation and he gave us freedom through his death on the cross. Where we deserved nothing, Jesus gave us everything. Man, this whole concept seems too good to be true, doesn't it? Isn't it sometimes kind of hard for us to get our minds around? I mean, it's hard for us to really understand that we get something that we've never deserved, that we haven't earned, because everything that we do is tied to what we deserve or what we've earned. The reward or the punishment, whatever it may be, is specifically tied to our behavior and what we've done to earn it. I mean, it's an eye for an eye. That's the way that we live in our culture. Everything is tied together. Let me give you an example, all right? When you guys were kids, or maybe even now, your, our moms and dads, they tie our behavior, or whether it's a, a, a punishment or whether it's a reward, it's specifically tied to our behavior. So if you're a good little boy who eats all his vegetables and does what's right and obeys and goes to bed when you're supposed to, then mommy and daddy give you some candy or they give you something good or they, they treat you right. If you disobey, if you play in traffic, if you run out, you know, in, in the middle of the street and you're not supposed to, if you, you know, curse out your mom and dad or you, you're a bad little boy or a bad little girl, then you're going to reap the, the, not the benefits, you're going to reap the punishment 
you're going to suffer the consequences for the way that you behaved. And from the time that we're little kids, we're, we are conditioned to believe that what we receive is tied to what we deserve. It's all about what we've done to earn it. When you look at athletics, if you work hard, you get more playing time. Right? If you bust your tail at practice, then the coach is going to put you in at a key spot. But man, if you miss that shot, or you foul at the wrong time, or you miss a tackle, or whatever the case may be, you play the wrong note in the middle of the concert, whatever it is, then you're going to reap the punishment for that. Right? You're going to get benched in the game. You fumbled the ball, and you caused your team to lose, so therefore you're going to get benched, and you're not going to play the rest of the game. See, the results of the end of our season is tied to what we deserve. No championship team stands at the podium at the end of the year and takes the trophy and says, man, we totally lucked into this whole championship thing. We didn't deserve one bit of it. We lucked this whole, through this whole season. No, they stand on that podium and say, we worked our tails off. We deserved every bit of this first place trophy. It's all tied to what they earned. All right, you look at your schoolwork. If you study hard, you'll probably get a good grade, right? If you sleep in class, you don't pay attention, you don't study hard, then unless your teacher's really nice and grades on a curve, then your grade's going to suck, right? That's the reality. And what you, what the grade that you get is probably, in most cases, what you deserve, all right? I know some of you think your teachers are all out to get you, but for the most part, the grades that you get are what you deserve. See, this is the way that our world works. And every single, every single thing about our life and the, and the areas in which we live tie our reward or our punishment specifically to what we deserve. And even though there's a biblical principle of reaping what you sow, God's grace has nothing to do with what we deserve. See, God's grace is based on who he is, not on what we've done. It's based on his character. It's based on his love for us. It's not tied to what we deserve or what we earned. God's grace comes with no strings attached. God doesn't hold his love and his forgiveness and his grace over us like a carrot. And he says, hey, if you run fast enough or if you love me hard enough, if you come to church enough, if you try hard enough, then you'll get all of these benefits and all of these rewards that I've got for you. See, Jesus freely gives us his love and his grace. It's not tied to what we deserve. It's tied to who he is. He freely gives it to us. It comes with no strings attached, and it comes with no payback. And that's a really good thing for us, because none of us could ever hope to pay back all of the incredible benefits that God has given us through his grace. We simply get to be the beneficiaries of God's incredible love for us. In his book, One Way Love, Tully Tavigian says this. He says, the value of our lives rests on God's infinite, incomprehensible, unconditional love for us, not our love for him. It's all tied into who he is. He simply looks at us and he loves us. 
couple years ago, uh, Angie and I had some really good friends of ours who went through a really rough patch in their marriage. And, um, and I, my friend called me one, one afternoon, and, and so I, I picked up the phone, and he's not an emotional guy, and immediately I knew that something, something huge was up. And he was just, he was an emotional wreck, and he just proceeded to tell me, hey, I, 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 need, I need some help, I need some wisdom, I need you to come talk to me. I just found out that my wife has been cheating on me. And, um, and I mean, you talk about his world falling apart. I mean, this, that was this guy. And so I hung up the phone, I drove over to his house, walked in the door, gave him a big hug, told him I loved him, and we just sat out in the kitchen, just him and I, and he just proceeded to tell me what, what had happened. And how he had discovered some different things, and he confronted her, and she admitted to it. And, and, and part of what, what he said was that, man, some of the difficult, the difficulty of this whole thing was the fact that she just kind of, it wasn't like she was necessarily remorseful or anything right in that moment. He's just like, I, I didn't even get the sense that she really even cared all that much. And I watched this guy as, he, as we spent a few hours just talking. And his entire world, his heart, ripped into a million pieces. But what struck me about that conversation is several times, over and over and over again, he said this. I can't lose my wife. I don't want to lose my wife. I've, I've, got, I've got to have her back. I've got to make sure that I keep my wife. And I've got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm sitting there looking like, dude, are you, I mean, part of me is thinking, are you crazy? And I don't know how I would respond in that situation, but, but so many of us, when we're faced with those kind of situations where we're hurt deeply and someone offends us, I mean, we're thinking retribution. We're thinking revenge. We're thinking payback. We want them to suffer the consequences. We want them to get what they deserve. And my friend simply said, I don't want to lose my wife. And over the next year, we kind of walked alongside them through probably one of the most difficult years that they've ever gone through. And they went through counseling, went through all these different things. And at this point today, their marriage is probably stronger and healthier than it's ever been before. But you know what rescued their marriage? You know what saved it? It wasn't the counseling sessions that they went to, although those were were a big deal. It wasn't any kind of marriage enrichment or them talking through things and working these things out, although that was very necessary and a big deal. It wasn't a guilt trip that he put on his wife. It was grace. My friend, what saved their marriage was his willingness in the face of the deepest hurt that he's probably ever experienced in his entire life to look at his wife and to say, but I will love you anyway. I want you. Jesus is the same way. He knows all of our past mistakes. He knows all of the things that we've done that have hurt him deeply. And they're a big deal and he weeps over our sin. And it breaks God's heart when we sin and he looks at our past mistakes. And it was a big enough deal for him to give up his life 
But in the face of our biggest mistakes, in the face of all of the times where we've turned our back against God, he looks at us and he says, I will love you anyway. I want you. I want you. And when we begin to understand how undeserving we are, and we come to grips with that, and yet we also on the other end of that begin to understand that there's a God out there who looks at all of that and he says, yeah, but I love you anyway. I want you. I'm not giving up on you. I'm going to continue to chase after you. I'm going to continue to pursue you. I want you. Changes everything. When we deserved nothing, God gave us everything. Main point tonight, and it's a phrase that you've you've probably heard a lot. I think Brian has said it before. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in our past. There is more grace in God's heart than there is sin in our past. And I don't know where this hits you guys tonight. And hopefully as we plow through this series over the next few weeks, maybe we begin to understand the heart of God like we have never experienced before. It is not about a bunch of religious activity. It's not about trying to constantly chase after this carrot that God's dangling before us. It's simply us coming before God, knowing our unworthiness, knowing our sin, and coming face to face with a God who says, yeah, it's a big deal, but I want you, and I love you anyway. What would it look like for you to fully embrace grace? What would happen if you stopped trying to earn right standing with God? And simply jumped into the depths of God's grace? What if you stopped doubting God's unmerited favor for you and you started living in its freedom? Man, just like the story of Charlie at the beginning, all of us have a choice to make. Either we can choose to be fearful, to fear this great mystery of God's grace. Or we can choose to dive in. I mean, like that Crowder song that that we sing a lot. If grace is an ocean, we're all sinking. And I pray that we would choose to dive in and to drown in the grace of our God. Let's pray. God, we praise you. We thank you. God, I pray that you would help all of us in this room. God, whether we want to dismiss it, admit it or not, whether we want to excuse it away, God, I pray that you would enable all of us to come face to face with how little we deserve. With how much our sin separated us from you. God, I pray maybe there are students tonight who have never come face to face with that. Maybe who have, have been quick to dismiss it, never, who have never maybe put their faith and trust in you because they've never admitted their own sin. God, I pray that you would bring all of us to a place where we would understand fully the weight of our sin and how little we deserve. God, as we understand that, not to stay in that place, not to be riddled with guilt, 
but to then at the same time to be able to understand that in the midst of that, that you left heaven and you stepped into our world and into our mess and into our crap and you came to rescue us. You came to offer the one thing that we needed that we could never provide for ourselves. And you gave us grace. And when we were deserving of nothing, you gave us everything. God, how life-changing that truth is for us. God, I pray tonight and over the course of this series, God, that you would enable us to understand that, to dive in deep, and to drown in the grace that you give us. We pray in Jesus' name.